Well, hello, beautiful. Hello there. Hello. My name's Forrest. Forrest Gump. Hello, John. Hello, John. Hello, John. <laughs> hello. Hello, John. Welcome to the party, pal. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello, Neo. Do you know who this is? Hello, Poppy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Be Kind, Please Rewind, a 90s movie podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. And I'm your other host, Chris. We are in October of 1990. How about that? Yeah, these movies took a little dip this month. Uh, decent movies, movies I'd never seen before, but nothing too spectacular on the agenda today. Well, I've only seen one out of the top three and one out of the entire list of 16 movies that we have this month. So definitely was not a stellar month for movies. No, definitely not. Um, so just as a little uh, warning to everyone out there listening, we are still forced to record through Skype because COVID is kicking everyone's ass right now. Yeah, I've had enough of it, honestly. Like, I don't. I don't know. I think about it and I wonder like how well I would fare during like World War Two when the world was like actually maybe ending. Like I would be good for the first nine months. And then after that, I'd probably just find myself in a corner crying every day. Well, the difference is, though, in order to get the news what, during World War Two, you had to go to the movies and uh, get your news that way. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I would have been on board with that. Unfortunately, we have the news shoved down our throats every day and it's like we have to actively avoid it. Yeah, that's tough. And also, I feel like, well, I mean, maybe the 40s, you had things to do, but I guess the, the Spanish flu in like the early 1900s, what did people do anyway? Like you were in your house all day, every day anyway. You didn't really go anywhere. So I feel like their lives didn't really change all that much. <laughs> I think I you're, you're really downplaying what life was like in the 19 teens, I guess, because I think people did things. I don't know. I feel like I feel like everybody lived on a farm in the 1900s. <laughs> anyway, moving on. All right, let's get into the movies. You're up first. What do you have? All right, coming in at number 16, grossing $765,000. Listen up, Quincy Jones. All right, so this is a unique look at the legendary musician, arranger, composer, and producer. It offers a collage of memories, sounds, and intimate interviews with musical guests in a rousing showcase. Yeah, if you look up IMDb on this, there is like an amazing, extensive cast of people who were interviewed for this documentary. So I would like to see it just to see some, I guess, I guess real life takes. Uh, Sinatra was in it. Michael Jackson was in it, along with that, like dozens of other people so well it makes me kind of think quincy jones is probably a musician i should know more about but i don't um yeah. i have no idea what his claim to fame is the only thing i know is that his daughter is rashida jones uh from parks and rec and <laughs> I, that movie i love you man that, that's pretty much all i know all right uh number 15 uh to sleep with anger this is a drama gross 1.1 million a uh, charismatic old acquaintance drifts into town, stirring up trouble for a mild-mannered family, starring Danny Glover. That's as exciting as that one gets. But I did watch the trailer for it, and it seems like an interesting movie. Almost like he's a guy losing his mind, right? Like, it, it's it's a pretty dark movie, it seems. Yeah, I have no idea what it is, what it's about, so. All right. So then moving 
even further. Number 14, The Hot Spot. Uh, it's grossed 100, oh, sorry, $1.2 million. Upon arriving to a small town, a drifter quickly gets into trouble with the local authorities and the local woman after he robs a bank. Uh, it's directed by Dennis Hopper, who, that's interesting, and he also directed Easy Rider, starring Don Johnson, Virginia Madsen, and Jennifer Connelly. Let me ask you a question. On a scale of one to ten, how hot is Jennifer Connelly? Yeah, I know you. You for this, she's your girl, right? Like she's your famous woman. Like that's the one. No, no, no. Only in a certain time period, like Requiem for a Dream. As so, you know what? The fact that you're using Requiem for a Dream as a reference to someone being hot, this you might have something wrong with you. Well, listen, I know that movie is like anything but a showcase for how hot she is, but she's smoking hot in that movie. So anyway, um, number 13, Desperate Hours, crime drama, gross $2.6 million. An escape con on the run from the law moves into a married couple's house and takes over their lives. Now, this sounds remarkably familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds just like that, uh, that Matthew Pacific Mordine. Heights. Yeah, Pacific Heights. That movie Michael just Keaton? reviewed that movie, what, two months we, ago? Yeah, we just we just watched that. <laughs> it's literally the exact same plot. This one's starring Mickey Rourke, uh, Anthony Hopkins, Mimi Rogers, and it's directed by Michael Cimino, who also directed Deer Hunter, which is a phenomenal movie. Agreed. But I just watched that movie, so I don't need to watch it again. <laughs> what, Deer Hunter? Oh, no, Desperate, Desperate Hours. Hours. <laughs> I get it now. That's okay. the joke. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> comedy, <laughs> timing, references. Excellent. All right, go ahead. Coming in at number 12, Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. Uh, this grossed $3.9 million. A small town prepares for the homecoming of superstar Roxy Carmichael, as does a young outsider who believes Roxy is her mother. Directed by Jim a Abrams, he directed Airplane, Hot Shots, and Hot Shots Part 2. Uh, starring Winona Ryder and Jeff Daniels. So, I mean, I like Winona Ryder. I think yeah. Jeff Daniels is a great actor. Yeah. Never heard of this movie. Um, the director, he, I liked Airplane. I know you don't, but uh, so I'm I'd not, give it a shot. I'm not a slapstick fan. Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part 2, is, is that's up there as far as that sort of comedy goes. Um, and I do like Winona Ryder, and Jeff Daniels as a comedy actor is more than serviceable, so I would watch it. Um, just so you know, it's pronounced. It's Hot Shots Part Du. Yeah, well, I I'm not it's, French, so. But the title is. I I get the joke, but I cannot mispronounce. Which I did, I believe, on the last episode, mispronounce Hot Shot Part Du. <laughs> number eleven, Night of the Living Dead. This is a classic horror movie. Gross well, five point eight million. It's a classic horror movie remake. Yeah, but this version is is arguably the best one in my opinion. Uh, remake of the 1968 horror classic of the same name. It's uh, If you don't know what this is about, you might not be a movie fan, but it's about zombies. Uh, director is George Romero, also directed Dawn of the Dead, Creepshow, which is another fantastic horror movie, uh, Day of the Dead, and Monkey Shines, uh, starring Nobody of Note. Let's be honest. If you don't know who George Romero is, you're just not a horror fan in any way. Um I, I've I've never seen Romero's uh, version of Night of the Living Dead. I did see the original, the 1968 version, and yeah. I love that movie. Uh, it's black and white, so that of course that always adds a a spookiness to it. And um, I, I like the original, so 
obviously I would give this a shot. I love George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. That movie freaked me out when I was in middle school. So, yeah, they're all, it's a very good horror series. Coming in at number 10, Henry and June, grossing $11 million. Henry is writing a book about his wife, June, when they meet a woman who, who's loose and free with her sexuality, expanding both of their horizons and become the financer of, and she becomes the financer of Henry's book. Trauma ensues, and this new woman changes too much about June's character. This description doesn't do anything for me. I have no idea what this is really about. I don't know. Um, you got, look, uh, you have Fred Ward, Uma Thurman, Kevin Spacey, the dick grabber's back, um, and a small part from Gary Oldman. The director, Philip Kaufman, directed Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Right Stuff, and he co-wrote uh, Raiders and Last Crusade. So based on that information, I would watch it. The The content uh, of the plot of the movie, not so interested. But, I mean, I don't know. If if it was on and I knew you know, who was in it, I would definitely give it a watch. It's just, when Fred Ward is your first build actor, I just, I, I mean, I've spoken about this before. He's all right in, a, in like a crappy Sunday afternoon movie, but he's not Tremors. Leading. Yeah, Tremors. It's the only movie I'm talking about. Uh, he's not leading a movie. I just Fred Ward just isn't enough for me. And I, and you know how I feel about Uma Thurman. I can't stand her. There's so many other movies out there that like this one. You just you're probably gonna pass on. Number nine, Graveyard Shift, another horror movie, eleven point five million. In an old textile mill with a serious rat infestation, deadly accidents start happening, but the corrupt foreman continues to put his workers in danger until they discover. A horrifying secret deep in the basement. This is a Stephen King short directed by Ralph Singleton. This is his only movie directorial credit and starring a slew of actors of little note. But, I mean, it's a horror movie. I definitely remember seeing the box cover. And it's uh, from a Stephen King short, which I'm sure Stephen King hated it as he's, he's renowned for doing. He's only ever liked two of the movies made from his uh, writings. But, you know, I'll watch anything based on a Stephen King anything because he's a fantastic writer and I'd give it a look. I mean, it, it earned it grossed eleven point five million. It can't be terrible. Yeah, I agree. Coming in at number eight, uh, the only movie either of us has seen from this month, Mr. Destiny. Grossing $15.3 million, unhappy Larry Burroughs sees what his life could have been had he made that winning home run as a teenager. Directed by James Orr, uh, this is the only thing he's ever directed, of note anyway. Uh, actors Jim Belushi, Linda Hamilton, Michael Caine, John Lovitz, Renee Russo, and Courtney Cox. So there's quite a few recognizable names in this movie. Yeah, this is actually a really good movie. This this one plays a lot more like an 80s movie than it does a 90s movie. Michael Caine is a bartender, and uh, Larry Burrow is played by Belushi. He goes into the bar one night, and he's, uh, he's still stewing. He feels like his life could have gone so much different had he hit the winning home run in like his high school championship baseball game. So Michael Caine fixes him a drink that allows him to go back in time, change. He hits the ball, and then he gets to see how different his life has been. But he's, like, aware of the fact that it's not the same. So he, he has, like, a new wife, a new house. And, and then it's, you know, the story of, oh, I, I took for granted all the things that I, I had, which were better than, you know, the different things. And he wants to go back to the way things were. So it's a wonderful life. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> more or less. 
I'm I'm gonna give this a watch. I should, probably should have done it for this podcast. Unfortunately, you know, life gets in the way of being able to watch every movie in the month. But just the cast alone interests me. Love a Mike a movie with Michael Caine. John Lovitz is always funny, yeah. and it it goes fast too. This movie doesn't drag. I think it's probably like a, an hour and a half runtime. So definitely yeah. worth it. Coming in at number seven, Reversal of Fortune, drama, fifteen point four million. Wealthy Sonny Von Bulow lies brain dead. Husband Klaus is uh, guilty of attempted murder, but he says he's innocent and he hires Alan Dershowitz for his appeal. Director is Barbette Schroeder, who directed Single White Female, starring Glenn Close and Jeremy Irons. It's a drama for old people, I guess. There's that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Coming in at number six, Avalon. A cool name for a movie, at least. Earning $15.7 million. A Polish Jewish family comes to the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. There, the family and the children try to make themselves a better future in the so called promised land. Directed by Barry Levinson, who of course directed Sleepers, Wag the Dog, Toys, Bugsy, and Rain Man. Stars Aiden Quinn. I'm a big fan of a period piece. So, and given this. Given this director's uh, uh, resume, I would watch it. Yeah, I'm not counting this out. Uh, I've never heard of it. I'm interested, though. Love, especially turn-of-the-century stuff. And I guess now you have to be specific. The turn of the 19th into the 20th century, because we're in a new century now. Um, But yeah, I I really like the early, the late 1800s, early 1900s periods for a movie. Yeah. All right, coming in at number five, White Palace. This is a love drama, gross $17.5 million. Uh, Lust turns to love for a 40-ish working-class woman and a 20-ish yuppie ad man with little in common, starring Susan Sarandon, James Spader, Jason Alexander, and Kathy Bates. Good enough people in the uh, cast, but um, look, I feel, I feel like an idiot sitting here saying, never seen it, don't want to see it. I would watch it, but I haven't seen it because like this, this part of like, we're still not in the heart of the nineties. Like I'm 10 years old at this point. There's zero chance that I'm ever going to get to see this movie. Right. And now as an adult, you're not going to, I'm not going to go looking through Netflix or, or Amazon prime and be like, Oh, white palace, a love drama. Definitely got to watch that. So, yeah. And I hear you too, because at this time I was five years old and Throughout the entire 90s, like, when would I have been old enough to watch, to, to care about this movie? This yeah, year? So, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. And even now, like, it, with, the, I feel like the thing about now is, too, and I, I'm going to sit here and sound like the old man saying, get off my lawn. But now with the amount of content that they pump out, you can't even keep up. So, like, a, a movie like this is just going to be lost in history, I feel. You know, obviously, it's going to have its fans, and it's got a good cast. And if you're looking for, like, the entire history of Kathy Bates or Susan Sarandon or James Spader, you know, you're going to watch it. But other than that, I mean, right. I, I feel like this is just going to be lost in time, things like this. And there's a lot of that going on throughout all these movies. But you know what? It's interesting just to talk about them and know they exist, even if we're not ever going to watch them. That's the way well, I feel. I mean, you know, and, and then I guess a positive note, we've come across movies where I've been like, wow, I definitely have to see that. And I've actually gone back and watched a few. So it is helpful there. And it's good to see how the months break down. But I'm just saying that come like 93, 94, when the classics really start coming and there's multiple movies that are coming out 
every single month and I'm like, oh, I love this movie. I love that movie. I'm just looking forward to that time. Right. And then like in, in 1994, I was nine years old and that's when my mom would go to the mall and because at that time she was a stay at home mom and she would go to the mall and what would she do? She'd give me five bucks and say, go to the movies and stay out of my hair. And I'd just sit in the theater when that movie was over. I'd walk to the next theater and watch that movie. <laughs> so like, we're going to, we're going to get to a point where like, I've seen like every movie from that month because that was the month my mom went to the mall and I went to every movie. Nice. <laughs> I like that. All yeah. right. Number four. Coming in at number four, sibling rivalry earning $17.8 million. A frustrated woman's life gets even more frustrating when she gets into an affair with a man who suffers a fatal heart attack after their fling. Starring your favorite, Kirstie Alley. Also starring Bill Pullman, Carrie Fisher, Jamie Gertz, Scott Bakula, and Sam Elliott. Oh, and also Ed O'Neill. Yeah, also directed by Carl Reiner, who, uh, rest in peace, just died in June of 2020. He died at 98 years old, though, so he had a nice long life. All right, and now we're on to the top three, and uh, they were all right. I mean, I really liked, you know, it was a, it was above average. I'll give it a six and a half. Yeah, there were, at no point during any of these three movies was I looking for them to, to be over. I, 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 was, I was enthralled by Memphis Belle. Same. And there were parts of each of the other movies, Quigley Down Under and Marked for Death, where I was like, all right, this is, this is good. This is worth watching. There so were also parts in... of those movies where I was miserable. but <laughs> Yes. Well, let, let's get into Quigley Down Under. Uh, number three, gross $21.4 million. All Matthew Quigley did was answer a help wanted ad. But a few surprises were waiting for Quigley down under. There was no mention of his friendly co-workers. Is everybody in this country as butt ugly as you three? Or that he'd get an assistant. Look out, Roy! Nothing about the transportation problem. Are we lost? Nope. I know exactly where we are. We're lost. The unusual local inhabitants. The extraordinary cuisine. I don't eat things that are still moving. You gonna shoot it first? Or the extra duties. You can take me if you want to, Roy. Kid, next time she talks like that, go all over the dress. Worst of all, his employer turned out to be somewhat moody. You could call it that. But Quigley's about to teach him a lesson in labor relations. That knocks me out of my own house. Don't worry, Roy. Everything's gonna turn out just fine. Sorry, Roy. My name ain't Roy. It's Matthew. Quigley. Matthew Quigley is really beginning to annoy me. Tom Selleck, Laura San Giacomo, Alan Rickman, from the director of the Emmy Award-winning Lonesome Dove, Quigley, Down Under. Starring Tom Selleck as Matthew Quigley. Uh, Laura San Giacomo as Crazy Cora. Uh, she's from Pretty Woman. She played Julia Roberts's uh, friend. And she's also from the show Just Shoot Me, starring alongside David Spade. There it is. Got it out. <laughs> Good job. 
Also, Alan Rickman plays Elliot Martin. He plays the bad guy. Uh, the plot, uh, Marston hires Quigley to kill the native aborigines near his land. Uh, apparently, the aborigines are killing his, um, his men and his livestock. And he needs Quigley because they... Uh, they, because Quigley is like the best long shot rifleman in the entire world. Quigley is uh, not about this life, though. And then uh, they need Quigley also because the Aborigines learned to stay out of normal rifle range. So Quigley apparently could shoot from hundreds of yards away or whatever. So here we are. Uh, so what'd you think about this movie? I have a lot to say. I have I have some to say. Uh, when I first saw a Tom Selleck movie, I was very depressed that I had to sit through a Tom Selleck movie. And in the first 10 minutes of the movie, I really thought I was going to hate every second of the movie. Yes. I completely um, agree. The worst part of this movie was the first 15 minutes. Yes. After that, it turned into a pretty decent movie, actually. Well, it found itself. I feel because the beginning, it, it had conflicting tones, right? The music, whoever did the score to this was, he was not watching the same movie I was watching. <laughs> And whoever set that first scene, that, that first fight scene, it was absurd. Like, I thought it was going to be, like, a really poor version of Maverick with Mel Gibson. Like, yeah. I, I, so I had anticipated what I was going to watch with this movie. And the first 15 minutes confirmed what I thought I was going to be seeing, which was a horrible half-comedy western, right? That's, that's what I thought I was going to get into. And they make nothing clear, too. Like, they, they establish nothing in that first 15 minutes except they, for Quig Quigley's a gentleman. That's the they, only thing I saw. The old, when the movie picked up is the first second that Alan Rickman steps on scene because you figure out why he's there, what the purpose of the movie is, who and who. I waited the whole the whole what was it maybe a half hour before I got to see Alan Rickman, and then my 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 eyes lit up because I knew that he was going to be able to carry the movie for me. I agree, but then I was also disappointed because I felt like Alan Rickman was completely underutilized in this movie. He yeah. maybe had ten minutes of screen time. Yeah, I, he was underutilized. I agree with you there. But also, whenever he was there, I was in good hands. Like, I could rest easy knowing that he was going to do a good job for me. I just want to point out, I didn't check anything about this movie except for that it was a Tom Selleck. As soon as Alan Rickman walked in, I was like, ooh, Alan Rickman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, very excited. So back to my, my point, what I was saying before, they had like this comedic fight scene with whimsical music in the first 10 minutes of, of the movie. Right. He gets hit and she accidentally hits him in the face. The, the Cora, like the whole like big yeah. stumbling, like nonsense of a fight. Bumbling, scene. incompetent. And he's like the tough guy. He's going to beat up three other guys. And she's getting in the way with it was silly. And I it was a, that was the movie I didn't want to see. Then we it get, just disappeared. Then we get to the ranch where uh, Alan Rickman, uh, Marston's ranch, uh, he wants to hire Quigley to kill the Aborigines, and then it turns into a real movie. I thought, uh, getting ahead of myself, but I, I really enjoyed the scene where Quigley was proving himself as well as he could shoot. So Rickman tells, gives his, one of his guys a bucket, gets on a horse, and tells the guy to just ride, and tells Quigley to say when to stop. And it's, I don't know how many yards was it, but hundreds of yards out, well, right? The guy was riding that horse full gallop for how long? <laughs> yeah. And he puts it out on top of this hill where you could barely see the bucket. And then he hits it once. And then he hits it again and again and again. So then they're convinced that he's as good as he said he was. All right. So Selleck proves himself, right? Like you were just saying, uh, shoots the bucket from like a mile away. It was crazy. Then Rickman invites him to dinner because he's going to make this proposal to him. And this actually was probably the top, a top three scene for me 
where uh, Rickman tells him exactly what's up. He's like, oh, we're going to kill all the Aborigines. And he's the Selick just isn't having it. And all of a sudden, the next thing you see is Rickman flying out his front door. And I know it's such a trope, but I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> just right through the window and the front door and just comes rolling. Nobody knocks me out of my own house. And meanwhile, Quigley's just chilling, lighting a cigarette, waiting for them to come. Yeah, that was. I like that scene. I also thought the guy, um, I wrote him down. His name is Jerome Ellers. He plays Coogan. He's the guy in the red vest. I thought he did a really good job too in his role. Like I, I, I feel like I didn't buy Selleck as a cowboy for no, one second. Not, not one second. All. He had the look, but his the way his demeanor was just. I, I felt like, I know I refer to Friends a lot, but <laughs> when he was in Friends, I felt like his character Richard in Friends was the same character as Quigley, just with a a different type of mustache. Yeah, like he had no. A pr- proper pronunciation. He had no accent. He was Tom Selleck saying old Western words. Yeah, he w- Western sayings, right? He just kept saying "I reckon" and "much obliged," and just <laughs> used those two sayings over and over and over again. And I'm like, now I don't believe you that you're using them because a) you're saying it like Tom Selleck from 1990, yeah. and b) nobody says it that much anyway. Yeah, I've, yeah, it was it was not good. All right, so I, I mean, uh, and any other notable scenes or, or 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 notes that you have from this movie? Um, yeah, we could just get to the categories. We could talk about it. So I thought one thing I wanted to mention too is that this film was actually so the the film t- the movie took place in Australia, but it was actually filmed in Australia, and it did have some nice scenery. I mean, it was nothing spectacular. It wasn't like The Revenant or something, but it was it was nice. It was nicely shot. It, there was nothing. Yeah, it was nice to look at throughout the whole movie. You're right. The, the 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 cinematography was fine. the The setting was definitely a nice backdrop for everything. It was, it was nice to look at. And the other uh, things I want to bring up too. Hold your hold your thought. The Cora's story about how she um, she smothered her own baby. How out of place was that? Like that was so dark. Right. Like, and I felt like you could have worked it in better, but she literally came out of nowhere with it. And there, there was nothing to, to bring that up except for they wanted to set up the scene with the Aborigine child where she had, was trying to keep him quiet because the dingoes were coming. But yeah. you're right. It felt did not fit the tone of the moment, did not fit what was happening in the movie. It just it, it was it was out of place. I felt like this movie wanted to be taken more seriously than it was. And it could have been taken more seriously than it was, I think, be- all right, here's my big problem with this movie. The title of the movie is Quigley Down Under, right? Yeah. So I immediately think about like a Crocodile Dundee movie. I don't know why, but it made me think of that. I guess because it's Australia. I, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But then I was saying to myself, wait, is this a sequel? Are there other Quigley movies? Is this it was a bad Quigley? title? Right. It's a bad title. It made me think there's something I'm missing about Quigley. Am I supposed to know who Quigley was? Because I don't. And. <laughs> Right, it was quickly like this fame, like uh, uh, Roy Rogers or right. you know, like somebody that we're supposed to know from old Western books or something. And then the title "Quigley Down Under" makes you think it's going to be a comedy, and it's not a comedy. It, it, which it, it tries I, to be for ten minutes, but it's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, look. All right, let's get into the the, the categories because I think we could clear up some of this, the problems there. All right. So the director Sam Winter directed Free Willy. 
uh, Crossfire Trail, which is another Western with Tom Selleck. And then he also directed a third Western with Tom Selleck that was a made-for-TV movie. But he also directed Lonesome Dove, which Lonesome Dove I've never seen, but I understand it's a good Western. And that's with Duval. So like you love Duvall too. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't love you, right? I know, but you you really love Duvall. And he also directed The Phantom, which I remember loving that movie, but I can't remember the movie. Yeah, I've never <laughs> seen it. All right, what's your best scene? My best scene is when they get dumped in the desert. I I love a Left for Dead. Again, I love movie tropes. Especially yeah. the the our plan is to leave you in the desert to die. Like we're yeah. not going to actually kill you, and we're going to tell you our plan and drop you in the desert. And then, of course, the the scramble to stay alive. And you know he stabs the one guy who tries to take the gold out of his pocket. The other guy is like further than the bucket was, and he shoots him off the off the uh, wagon. I loved the scene. It was it was exciting. It was fun. It was suspenseful. Yeah, it was all right. it, that was good. I like I did enjoy that. Um, I liked the the scene that I had spoke about earlier quickly proving himself i felt it was well done and uh it also led me to my favorite line so uh cora laura san giacomo they call her crazy cora she keeps on referring to quigley as roy her estranged husband before he shoots the bucket he like there so she's there as like a prostitute and another prostitute's there and she's like can your guy Roy really shoot that far? And she's like, I don't know who the hell that he is. <laughs> so it's like her first moment of clarity where you like caught the glimpse that the craziness was an act. Right. I appreciated that. Well, the other, and just to build on that though, because there was another scene later on where she kind of does a similar thing and yeah. she keeps saying, she goes, if we're lost, you can tell me Roy. Yeah. He goes, yeah, we're lost. She goes, Tell me the truth. No, I know what you're saying. There's a whole back and forth where he keeps telling her she's lost and she's like, give it to me straight. And then he finally says, no, we're I know exactly, exactly where we're where supposed we to be going. And she's like, she's oh, like oh, thank you. <laughs> and she wouldn't accept the fact that they were lost. Right. That was good. My other favorite scene was um, when they were with the Aborigines and they were like sharing each other's like their ways. He, they were teaching each other little things. I thought that was a sincere scene. I thought it was cool too, but I also felt more could have come out of that. So like, why didn't he ever use like, or her use an Aborigine like skill to yeah. stay alive? Yeah. Like you never no, saw him, like maybe have them later on, like, like dying of thirst in the desert and digging that stick into the ground and drinking the water out of the ground. You know what I mean? Continuity is what you're looking for. I'm looking for a little callback. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was fun scene though. I also liked the final scene. The whole them waiting for him and and them thinking he was going to come at night, but he purposefully waited till day. I thought that was cool. He set up a tripwire. I knew it was coming, but it was great. Knocked the guys off the horses. I just, the only thing I don't like is that, all right, Alan Rickman gave him the one chance when he dropped him in the desert. He was like, you're going to die in the desert. But then he gives him another chance and they're going to have a duel now because well, the, Rickman thinks he's so fast. Well, the bad guy monologuing. It never yeah. works out. I like, I like a... A one bad guy monologue. Not two. Not two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, poor writing, I suppose. Worst yeah. scene? This is, I think we're going to agree on this. It was the first 10 minutes of the movie when he's getting on the, you know, getting off the boat onto the dock and they have that fight scene. It just, it yeah, didn't the fit the tone of the rest of the movie. Yeah, the opening fight scene. Definitely yeah. the worst. Best role? I like Laura San Giacomo. I thought she did a great job as Crazy Cora. I would have said Alan Rickman. I just don't think he was in enough of the movie to 
win best role? Well, I gave it to Rickman because I don't think that anybody else could hold a candle to to his performance. When he I, when whenever he's on screen, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. A hundred percent agree, but you have to be in there more than ten minutes to to win this award, in my opinion. That's a fair argument, but then I'll retort by saying he was the antagonist of the movie, so he did have a clearly defined role. I, I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying he wasn't on the screen enough. That's all. He okay. was definitely the best actor in this movie. And, of course, the worst actor, not worst actor, but the worst role, yep. Tom Selleck. I completely agree. I didn't buy him <laughs> as a cowboy for one second. Not like one he, second. To me, he was just a prop. <laughs> yes. All right, most quotable lines. I only have one. It's a it's an exchange between Quigley and Cora when they're uh, the Aborigines saved them, and the the woman gives them the grubs to eat, and then he looks at it and he goes, "I don't eat things that are still moving." And then Cora goes, "You're gonna shoot it first? <laughs> I thought that was funny. That was great. And then, but then he chooses the biggest one to eat, and I'm like, "Why would you choose the biggest grub? That's gross." Uh, uh, if, you go, if you're going in, you might as well go all in. I guess so. So. I already gave my best quote. My favorite yep. quote was the back and forth with the we're lost. And he's yep. like, yep, we're lost. Yeah, That was very good. Um, Our, something hey. that I did see at the end of the movie. Yeah. They said no animals were killed or injured. It's like, what's the point of saying that? Like, cause she shot some dogs. I mean, they didn't tell us no Aborigines were hurt or killed during this movie. I mean, did they kill Aborigines to make this movie then? Is that my, I, I, I also was very confused of, about the authenticity of the aborigines were they actual aborigines because i looked it up i couldn't find anything to the facts or to the contrary but they seemed and appeared to be um authentic a- aborigines but then they were doing stunts like jumping off cliffs and stuff so i don't know if that was in their wheelhouse really maybe that part wasn't the aborigines maybe those are stunt doubles there's that possibility, but they were in like a fair amount of scenes, and I don't know what the extent of their language barriers would have ex- ex- allowed that to happen. I would think, based off of the way their hands looked, because those that wasn't that wasn't yeah. makeup, that wasn't effects. That's what the, those were rough, rough hands of a person who was and living big, in the wild. Big yeah. hands. So I have to assume they were authentic Aborigines, but maybe they weren't, or, or at least indigenous people. I don't know. Yes. I don't yes. know if there's. I don't know much about the Aborigines people, so I can't really say yes or no, but right. I would assume they were definitely indigenous. Would you recommend this movie? It's worth a watch. It's It wasn't bad. Get through the first 15 minutes and you have a decent movie on your hands. So we had a text exchange where we both yes. felt felt um, conflicted about <laughs> I, our opinion of the movie. Yeah, I think and, I texted you. <laughs> I don't hate Quigley Down Under, but also I hate Quigley Down Under. <laughs> and I felt exactly the same. Like I was like, wow, I really want to like this movie, but I also hate this movie. <laughs> so I would never watch it again. No, I mean, I'm never if, turning it on again. Definitely not. But I didn't I didn't suffer through it. If this movie was on like TNT or something and I saw it, I'd be like, oh, hey, Quigley Down Under. And then I changed the channel. <laughs> I think that's an excellent, excellent description of how I feel about this movie. All right, coming in at number two, Memphis Bell grossing $27.4 million. In the summer of 1943, a fierce battle raged in the skies of Europe. So that's the crew of the Memphis Bell, huh? They're just ordinary men, Colonel. They fly 24 missions without a scratch. That doesn't sound very ordinary to me. 
Starring quite a few people, Matthew Modine, Eric Stoltz, Tate Donovan, D.B. Sweeney, Billy Zane, Sean Astin, and Harry Connick Jr. Also John Lithgow. And you also have Jason Strathrin. I can't really pronounce his name, but he uh, plays Colonel Craig Harriman. He's the dad in River Wild. He's also in Ellie Confidential, and he's also in Lincoln, and he's also in a lot of other movies. He has like 140-something <laughs> acting credits. But uh, I just that's, thought it was fun to see him in, in the movie. That's something I've been noticing more and more and more is like when you have like a, a character actor, they have so many more credits than like the big stars. That's I just never realized that before. Some of them do it exceptionally well, though, like Bill Paxton. So this movie follows the crew of the Memphis Bell, a bomber from World War II. They have completed and returned safely from 24 missions. They're about to embark on their 25th and final mission that if they get if they make it home safe, they will be returning home. I was very, very, very entertained by this movie. So the opening scene was great. I, I love I know a lot of people aren't a fan of it, but a, a good narration in movies, and it didn't return. But just, it wasn't an it wasn't really a narration as much as it was just a voiceover introduction because they never went back to it, like you said. So it's like it wasn't a true narration. It was good though. They introduced all the characters, and I I do like a good ensemble cast. And we have you know the makings of an ensemble cast here. So it was like I a, appreciated it. Yeah, it was like a, a B cast ensemble. Right. Yes. You know, like everyone knows every one of these guys, but they're not top tier actors. It's well, not like I, think, <laughs> I think I think Eric Stoltz and Sean Astin divine like the B class. I, I think Billy Zane's right there, too. I wouldn't call him an A-list actor. <laughs> I guess. But I don't know. I always look at I always look at Billy Zane. Billy Zane is one person to me. And he's he's uh, the bad guy in Titanic. Absolutely. That's, that's all he is. So, he's also in Zoolander. Yeah, I'm not not a fan of Zoolander. I could couldn't tell you the last time I saw it. What did go ahead? What did you think? I like I said, I was very entertained by this movie. At no point, at every scene, I liked every scene of this movie from the introduction of the characters, from showing them horsing around in the barracks to the party right before they're taken off the next day on their mission, to the briefing before the mission, being on the plane. Uh, bombing the warehouse in Germany and trying to make it home safely. 
it was a great flow. There was no scene was too long. And I don't think that they made any mistakes in this movie, honestly. Well, I thought, I thought that there was great character development. I felt like I was emotionally invested in almost every character. And there were a lot of them. Um, and I thought that it was done a bit differently from most war movies that I've seen in the sense that they were on the plane for a long time. The majority of the movie, they were on the bomber. And I liked how they introduced, uh, like they had different fat. I don't know the proper terminology because I'm not a military person in any sense of the word. They had like different airplanes. So I guess like there was fighter fighter planes on their side and there were bombers on their side and there was like different battles going on. Like the other, the, like the Nazis would send in their attack planes and then their, their fighter planes would go fight off the Nazis and try and keep them away from the bombers. I thought all that stuff was very interesting and something that I don't remember ever seeing before. And, and highly entertaining too. The, the, what I thought they did the best is they didn't overdo the the plane fights, right, or whatever you would call them, the the in dog the, fights. the dog fights, right? It wasn't they didn't take too long. It wasn't like every time a plane came up, they weren't just shooting it down easily. That was they shot at the plane and maybe it took off and flew away. I hate when you watch a movie and you're just like watching them mow down all the bad guys. That's yeah, not what's happening here. No, there wasn't. It was a war movie, not an action movie, though it had action in it. So I thought right. that it was restrained is the best word for the use of the fighting yes and honestly if there was any any quarrel that i had with this movie it was just the idea that there were too many close calls so three or four times like you'd see a bullet come through the plane or something explode and they'd lose a piece of the plane and they would just barely escaped by the skin of their teeth and it happened like three or four times i think one or two would have been fine the fact that it was so many close calls i thought they just went one or two too many they dipped back into the well one too many times but right. other than that i thought i didn't think that this this movie had me riveted at moments like i was on the edge of my seat like yeah. i thought it was very well done and i've never seen this movie before and I thought they did a really good job of keeping everything like a good mix of light lightheartedness as well as showing the the real there were real stakes in this movie, but they still found time to have a good time and and interact and not just be miserable and scared the whole time. Um, yeah. I also thought that, as you mentioned before, the character development was excellent, and each person, each character in this movie, was a different character. There was no stereotyped uh, military guy. It was just this kid was into religion. This kid was superstitious. This one was the young buck who thought Sean Aston was a young buck who thought he was the ladies man just was way too confident in himself. And you just had all these different mix of characters. And I thought they melded well together and they really played off each other. Great as well. You really felt like they had a camaraderie. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought it, you know, look, I'm glad I saw this because I really enjoyed it. And then you had uh Lithgow who was like a little bit of the sleaze ball trying to make them famous. Um, and you know, he was like kind of like the propaganda guy. And then you had the colonel who was David, David um, Straithren, however you pronounce his name, who was like, he wanted to fight the war. He didn't want the guys to be like, he didn't want the sideshow part of it. He just wanted to win the war. Right. So and I, they made him like a real hard ass. But at the end, he was really cared about his men. I don't know. I, as much as I like this movie, I wish I had more to say about it. The scenes were, were the fighting scene. Which was long, right? I mean, how it was the majority of the movie when they were in the plane, right? And it was but, it, it was intense from start to finish, 
But then I try and recall back to a specific part of it, and I'm like, well, it kind of all melds together. So let's get into it then. Let's talk. Let's get into the categories. Let's talk about. Uh, start with the director. So the director was Michael Catton Jones. Also directed Doc Hollywood with Michael J. Fox, and he also directed This Boy's Life with De Niro and DiCaprio. Not the sidebar, but please go watch This Boy's Life with De Niro and DiCaprio. That's an amazing movie. Anyway, uh, did he? Did you find anything else interesting that the director did? No, it was just those couple movies, and I know you're very big on that uh, DiCaprio De Niro movie. So it's something I'm going to want to check out after this. So for me, the best scene in this movie had nothing to do with the war, nothing to do with the battle. It was about when the captain, what was he? Matthew Modine. No, no, no. The, not the captain, the, the, the general, colonel? Not the, general. the colonel. colonel. Thank you. When the colonel finally snaps on Lithgow, who's trying to put on this big dog and pony show and sits him down and starts handing him all the letters of all the people that thanked him for his personal uh, reach out for people, for his men who had died at war. Yeah, uh, it really makes Lithgow look like a huge dick. And I thought yeah. the way that they had the voiceovers of the people reading their own letters and it was it was a very impactful moment. I thought it was a well done scene. Yeah, yeah touching scene. Um, I guess one of my favorite scenes was when uh, they so they fly over the target the first time. Billy Zane is spotting the target and he can't see it because there's smoke cover. So they were going to bail out on the mission. But Matthew Modine, who was the captain and the pilot, says, no, we're not bailing on the mission because if we bail on the mission, somebody's going to have to come up here and finish our job for us. So what he wanted to do, which was extremely dangerous, was he wanted to circle back and come back around and hit the target a second time. Everybody else protested, but he insisted, and then they finally hit their target. So I thought it was good for intensity in the movie and good for Matthew Modine's character because he was like the moral compass of the movie. Right, and that whole recycle of that same scene, like... For a moment, I thought, yeah, you're just going to play the whole scene over again. That's what you're going to do. And to be honest, it, it, it played. It, it worked well. Yeah, I like that scene. What was your worst scene? I don't. If I had to pick a worst scene, it would be when Eric Stoltz is talking to the rookie in the bathroom. And they're, they're having like this moment like between each other. I, I didn't. It, it just didn't fit. Like there was no need for it because... I, I don't know how it played into the rest of the movie. This the, It was a solid, like, five minutes in the bathroom, him handing the kid mouthwash and, like, helping him get over his fear. I guess to show that he was caring, but I didn't think it was necessary. I don't know about worst scene, but I thought the worst redundancy in the movie, like, the worst trope, I guess, for lack of a better term, was Sean Astin constantly calling the other guy virgin. I don't know. I guess 1990, it's okay, but this is 2020. And it just like you no know, <laughs> like who really gives a shit? I don't right. care. Nobody, the kid's a virgin. No, nobody and then, cared. And then he loses his virginity. I thought you know. Then the kid played it well. He loses his virginity eventually, and then he goes to tell Sean Astin. He's like, I could say you, I could tell you something, but no. So yeah. he kept it to himself. Anyway, I know I just didn't appreciate that, but I had to reach to find something that I didn't like here. Same, and honestly, I didn't like that part of the movie either. So all right, best role. That's the tough one. Um, I really like Billy Zane. I really like Matthew Modine. I like Sean Astin. I even liked Harry Connick Jr. And I don't generally like Harry Connick Jr. I, I guess I don't know. I would have to give it to Modine simply because he was the leader of the of the group. 
I don't necessarily think he did the best job, but I think he did the the best job at that character. Like he, no, I I agree. I understand what you're saying. He was he had the most impact on the movie. His role had the most impact, and he did it well. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Billy Zane as being like you know one of the better actors in the movie, and I kind of now I'm thinking about it. He actually did a really good job playing the pretended he was a, a doctor and he wasn't and getting caught into a situation where he actually had to be a doctor and only had two weeks of med school to really rely on. Um, you yeah, could had see to the fear. admit that he was lying. Right. You could see the fear in his eyes. He did play that, that whole role well. So it was good. Uh, most quotable lines. Worst role? You in the sc- oh, worst categories? Because uh, I have none. I thought... <laughs> I liked I liked every role in this movie, and I thought everyone played their part well, and I thought every character had its place in the movie. Uh, I'll I'll grant you that, but if I had to choose a worse role, and and not because they did a poor job, but just because I just generally don't appreciate them on film, it's John Lithgow. Like <laughs> I, I don't mean to disparage the man as a as an actor or what have you, but I just never there's never been a John Lithgow role where I'm like, oh, remember that movie that I loved John Lithgow in. But this role did fit his personality, did fit his acting style. So I, I thought in this particular role, it was fine. And you yeah, know what? I, I, go ahead. No, I was agreeing with you. <laughs> I, I, I'm just reaching that if I have to pick somebody, that's who I pick. You know what? I'll pick someone. I pick Harry Connick Jr. Just because for some reason I don't like his face. But really, because I'm changing my worst scene now too. Because when for no reason at all, they decide to put Harry Connick Jr. on stage and singing. It's like, I hate movies when they do that. I, this is like the third movie now we've seen where we're just going to take this actor who's also a singer and throw them into the stage to sing a whole song. I don't, I don't need that. Yeah, no, it's, it, it almost never fits. Even, even in Dick Tracy, when Madonna was there, like it was like kind of like, uh, do I really need to see Madonna sing right now? Never, never good. Uh, most quotable line? My favorite line in the whole movie was actually the whole ensemble at the same time where uh, Matthew Modine is responding to, like, I guess the tower. And he's like, situation normal. And the whole rest of the plane just goes, oh, fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was good. All right. Uh, Anything else you want to discuss before we move on? I just want to say this was a treat of a movie. I'm wasn't i had no idea what i was about to watch because memphis bell i didn't think of world war ii planes i just i thought of i don't know it made me think of something that might be happening in the south it didn't make me think of world war ii planes so i was very delightfully surprised when i turned this movie on yeah and in all honesty full disclosure uh i for some reason thought that this was uh an all-black cast i thought that this was like a historic uh, I based on a true story of maybe like the first all black. Yeah, the Tuskegee Airmen, starring yes. Lawrence Fishburne, which is comes out in five years from now. So I got in nineteen ninety. <laughs> I got I got those two mixed up, but I was pleasantly surprised and thoroughly enjoyed this movie and would watch this one again. Absolutely. All right, and number one, what do we have, Chris? Well, everyone's favorite actor, <laughs> Steven Seagal in. Marked for death. Jamaican gangs known as posses are now dominating the American drug trade. In Above the Law, he got tough. Who's that? John Hatcher, DEA. In Hard to Kill, he got even. It's not the time for you to walk out of me. I've had enough. 
He thinks he's retired. He still looks functional to me. Now, the man with the short fuse is marked for death. I want you to meet my sister, goddess of fire. Steven Seagal is John Hatcher. He's dead. And he don't even know it. A good cop. Your family has been marked. In a bad mood. I don't think he's gonna get the chance. What are you planning to do? I'm gonna take out the posse. One thought he was invincible. The other thought he could fly. They were both wrong. Who do you fear? Him. I'm gonna deliver you into the light. Steven Seagal is marked for death. It's my silent partner. But this time, he's bringing out the big guns. Steven Seagal, marked for death. Are you some kind of cop? Nah, I'm just a concerned citizen. This one grossed $43 million, starring Steven Seagal uh, as John Hatcher. Basil Wallace as Screwface. This was his first movie role ever. Keith David. Keith David is a treasure. I, I have it in my notes. I love Keith David. And then Danielle Harris, uh, who you she didn't play a major role, but her face is so well known to me. She's the little girl, Jamie, from Halloween 4. Oh, all right. And she's I, also the little girl from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. <laughs> That, I had no idea. Yeah, so I had to bring that up. I love I love catching people in movies and be like, oh, I know her. Also, did you catch Danny Trejo? I did. I was just about to say that. You... Go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. You so, can fanboy so, Danny Trejo. So the scene, st- the movie starts off and uh, Seagal's chasing someone. Go figure. And he finally catches up to the guy and he's beating the pulp out of him. And then you look and it's like, oh, my God, that's Danny Trejo. Yeah. It was wonderful to see him there. Not one line. Or maybe he just said, I don't know. That was it, right? Yeah, and he gets thrown in the trunk, and then he he comes back maybe for like a minute. They they pull him out of the trunk, and they have a knife to his throat, and that's it. I I like the gratuitous strip club scene. (laughs) I'm always enjoying a a gratuitous strip club scene. Always. So many boobs in this movie. Every chance they got, there was boobs. Yes. (laughs) How many times did we see Seagal beat up multiple people at once again? And why does he just love to grab people by their faces? I feel like that's his favorite movie. He's like the grab face, the grab face push, grab face push. That's well, his- I think that his, I don't know, his, his style of martial arts is that like you take people's momentum and use it against them. So I think he, that's why there's a lot of that. Like he the wants flips. to be authentic. Yeah, like the flips and the arm grabs and the, the trips and all that stuff. I think that's his style of martial arts. And the breaking arms over your shoulder. <laughs> yes. Now, oh, so many broken arms. So many. Can I say, so one of the things I've noticed, so I think the whole idea is Seagal wants the martial arts to be authentic in the movie, right? Yeah. Which is, I guess, a great idea because he's a martial artist and he wants it to be real. Yeah. I don't want to see real martial arts. I want to see over-the-top martial arts. I want to see things that could never happen. I want to see him kick someone and then go flying over the building. That's what I want to see. 
Well, I'd argue that a lot of things that could never happen happen in Seagal martial arts. It's true. But I think you understand what I'm saying. Like, every Yeah, move... you want to see stunt martial arts. Right, yeah. I, I want to see, like, Jet Li. I want to see Jet Li martial arts. That's what I want to see. Yeah, you want to see, like, High Wire, like, yes. all that stuff. Yes. I, I understand. Let me ask you a question. So, he... So let's let's get back into the what happens in the movie because did did we even discuss the plot? No, we just started talking about Steven Seagal fighting. I, so Seagal's working undercover, I guess, down in Colombia or Mexico, wherever he is, and then he gets burnt out. He sees that he's fighting this drug war, and they're not making any headway. So he gets burnt out. He goes and he tells the guy he retires. He goes back to his hometown, sees his family. Goes to see his old coach, who's Keith Richards. No, it's not his old coach. It's his, it's his old war buddy. They show the picture on his desk. Oh, well, that clears up a lot for me because I had questions. <laughs> he just happened so, to be coaching at his old high school, which I don't get that part. I don't know. Maybe they went to high school together. Okay, so the, we'll come, we're going to circle back to that. But And hold on. So, did you just call Keith David Keith Richards? I 100% did. <laughs> so he comes back to his family he goes back to his old high school. He sees Keith David, who's the football coach there. And then immediately, Keith David starts to lose his mind because he sees Jamaicans dealing drugs to the high school students there. And why is that one high school kid so infatuated with crack? He's so, was... ex- so excited he's buying crack. And how, how, how open was that little girl to smoking it? She was like, she's like, crack. I'll try it. Yeah, go, we all want crack. Slow down, little girl. Slow down. And Keith David is so mad about the Jamaicans. So mad. He's furious. And then, so they go to the bar, the local bar, that have a drink, and they see more Jamaicans. And, and then, then Keith David drops the bombshell. My fourteen-year-old nephew died last week. Yeah, that was absurd. That was the worst <laughs> writing I've ever encountered. Like you couldn't think of a better hook in. Yeah. Like, or if you are like. Have some sort of lead into it, not just boom. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. Why? Like, why are you so? He's uh, Seagal's more or less like, why don't you just leave it alone? He's like, well, my whole entire family was murdered by a Jamaican yesterday. So <laughs> well, anyway, you'd, you'd still be grieving, not out at your coaching yeah. your football team like nothing. And happened. then going out for drinks afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> the only time it was a problem is when Seagal questioned his motives. Like I w- wasn't gonna bring it up, but <laughs> <laughs> since you forced me to tell you. So anyway, so then they fight the Jamaicans at the um, at the bar, and then Seagal is quote unquote marked for death. Right? And, wait, wait. But I also said I was like, Seagal just retired. He he can't go one day without getting caught up in a drug ring. And and mind you, they're in suburbia. They're not in some big city. Like he just happens to be a big drug ring at his hometown when he retires. The plot's silly, but I this this oh, I is love not it. this is not a movie where you want to get caught up in the plot. You just want to watch the insanity co- yes. on screen, which it did a good job of. I was entertained. I was I've entertained seen... with everything except the voodooism. I thought it was completely unnecessary. It played no role except for that's what they that was the, like like what did it what purpose did it serve? You well, could just have a drug, but you could just have a drug dealer who's mad at this guy who's breaking up their drug ring and he goes and tries to kill his sister. Like that, that still plays out. You don't well, need the voodoo. I, you don't need it, but it's not like it was, they, they, they didn't bring it up and forget about it. It played throughout the entire movie. So at least it had continuity. Like all his men were afraid of him because they thought that he was the most powerful, magical voodoo 
whatever title he held. Because so. spoiler alert, he has an identical twin. Yeah, which was <laughs> I thought that was cool. I actually thought it was cool too. I, I had an exclamation point during that reveal. <laughs> yeah. So then, so I, so I had a note when, and I, I wrote, I, hold on. And when I found out they were twins, I wrote twins Basil. And then I found out that his name in real life is Basil. <laughs> That's great. Right. So I wrote what happened to Keith Richards coaching job and why does he know so much about guns? So I didn't realize that they were old <laughs> war buddies, but did he just completely quit? Like, did he ever call in and resign or anything? I think he was still coaching throughout everything. <laughs> Like, hold on, guys. We gotta stop this shootout. I get the football practice. It's four o'clock. One of my favorite moments in this whole movie is not his niece getting shot, but when they're in the hospital and Seagal's had enough and he's finally gonna fight the drug the drug lords, and he just turns to Keith David. They don't say a word. They just start like marching out of the hospital, and they just looked so powerful, and it was just so intense. And I was like, "This is amazing. This is this is why." We love 90s action movies. I also thought that Seagal should get the fuck off the screen and just let Keith David do his thing. Keith David was amazing, this whole movie. Yeah, I love Keith David. Another spoiler alert. Keith, Keith David was the best actor in this movie. And then, sorry, so then let's fast forward all the way towards the end, right? When they're, they go to the house, the, the, the compound, and they're starting to shoot people, right? They're sniping people from afar. Honestly, this is where I started losing interest. Did you, did you notice that... Every time Seagal shot somebody, they fell in the wrong direction from where they were being shot. Every no, last I, one of them, and it happened like four times. That's perfect. I love it. I wish a I would have noticed it. A guy would get like shot, like he'd be walking away from Seagal and get like shot in the back, and like he'd fall over to like the left. <laughs> but it was like more. It was more profound than that, where it was like clearly made no sense. Well, you know, like you said, Seagal movies don't have to make sense. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you're right. Last note. At the at that same scene, right? And the, all the people are dancing. All the girls are dancing when they're infiltrating the house. But there's no music playing. <laughs> I was like, hold on. I was like, wait, did they forget to add in the music and editing? Because there was no music. I didn't notice that. And I'm definitely going back to rewatch because that sounds amazing. So let's get into the categories. Uh, the director, Dwight Little. Dwight H. Little. Uh, he directed direct Murder at 1600. And yeah. Broken Arrow. Those are the only ones I thought of were of note. Halloween 4. And that's the same little girl that's in Halloween 4. Oh, there's your continuity. And he also directed Free Willy 2. Free Willy 2, the second one? Yes. Free so we had two directors this month. One directed Free Willy. The other directed Free Willy 2. That's accurate. Fantastic. I love both of those movies. Huh. Those two movies are just treasures from my childhood. Like I wish both. I could... I wish I could remember any of the free willies. Well, we're going to get to watch them. So uh, all right, I'm on board. Um, what's your best scene? My best scene was, and actually I believe this is a really well shot, really well choreographed scene was the car chase. It was 10 minutes of just pure adrenaline. And I thought it was amazing. Um, so I just said from the cars flying over through, the car's driving through the park to hurtling over that wall, uh, driving on the sidewalks, going through buildings. And then inside the building, it was great also, especially when Seagal started doing all his karate poses. And like, <laughs> I like started like chopping the air. Like I was so excited <laughs> in the movie. Um, 
the best part of the of everything was just the cap it off. Seagal had already taken down everyone, and it was over. And one of the guys, one of the Jamaicans, is down on the ground. He's starting to get back up, and Keith David comes out of nowhere, just charging in and just bashes the guy in the face with a shotgun. I loved it. The jewelry store fight scene. That's that what was, I was talking about. Yeah, that was the tail end of the whole thing, right? Right. Yep. Yeah, when Seagal's taking the one guy and he's smashing them into all the jewelry cases and <laughs> smashing all of them, like it's over the top. It's over the top '90s cheesy action, and that's exactly what you're there for. And there were three guys, and he broke all three of their arms. It's so. Uh, I wonder if Seagal insisted on like choreographing the fights because, like, he did this in the last movie too that we reviewed. And it's like a lot of the same things happen again and again. Like he runs out of ideas. Yeah. And and it, that's what I'm talking about. And he was literally like in every scene, he's grabbing someone by their head and throwing them to the ground. Like yeah. use a new move guy. <laughs> you have a lot of options at your disposal. This is Hollywood. <laughs> and you're a martial artist. You have a plethora. You're a black belt. You have a plethora of moves you can use. All right. What's your worst scene? My worst scene is right after the jewelry scene when he's driving home, I guess. Yeah, and he keeps getting mad at all the tr- all the uh, the construction, and it's so clearly a setup, and yeah. he has no idea, and he's just like, ah, oh, oh, come on, and <laughs> every stop. I think my worst scene is when they're packed. They're starting to make all the guns in like that little shed or whatever they're in. They're like sawing the shotguns and building the sniper <laughs> rifles and this and that. And, and they Sagan- put it in the camera. Why? Yeah. So, no, Seagal, so then Seagal has a, an entire side of godforsaken beef hanging yes, yes. inside this, this room that they're in, and he's unloading automatic <laughs> weapons into it. For no There's reason. There's no point in that. There's no point to that. There's no point it, at all. It's just a waste of a good side of beef. All you wanted to do was that, that was... That couldn't have been for any other reason other than to put it on camera. <laughs> couldn't have been any real-life use for that. So that was I, my worst scene. I had the exact same thought, but it's funny to talk about, man. It's oh amazing to talk. These are this the Seagal movies are the movies that you want to laugh at with somebody else. That's what they're right. great for. But how good are most of the action scenes? I literally was jumping off my couch pretending to fight. <laughs> like I was ten years old again. Uh well again, this is not this is also as like the last one we did, not my favorite Seagal movie, but we're getting to it. All right. Uh, Best role? Best role is Keith David. Like I said I was... before. He's he's amazing. I love him in everything he's in. Especially The Thing. I thought he was great in The Thing. Sidebar. Uh, sidebar. Quick sidebar. Your favorite Keith David role ever. Go. Said The Thing. Is that your favorite ever? Well, because I love the movie. And it was just such... You, you know the story behind me seeing that movie. and Because you were the reason I saw that movie. And yes. I don't know. Just love it. All right, my favorite Keith David role. It's not my. It's not his best role, but my favorite Keith David role is in Armageddon when he's like, oh, the, yeah. whatever commander he is, whatever his title might be, and he's like, he's like, I'm not so optimistic. You're trusting the fate of the world to a bunch of guys I wouldn't trust with a potato gun. <laughs> <laughs> and this is only your third callback to Armageddon since we started this podcast. I know. I'm restraining myself. <laughs> All right, so. Best role, my best role, is I would have said Keith David, but I, I thought the guy Basil Wallace did a really good job. And the fact that he was actually Jamaican, I double-checked to make sure that he was actually Jamaican to make sure that there was some sort of authenticity to the, the language that they were using before I gave him my, my best role. Speaking of the language, 
I was very confused about them calling everyone a blood clot. Like yeah. every every Jamaican called Bumble everyone clot, a blood, blood clot. Yeah. And then I looked it up and like, cause I thought, oh, they must be calling them like a period or something. Like it has to be that. Yeah. But apparently when you call someone a blood clot, yeah. It's it's saying you should have been uh you should have been a miscarriage before you were born like that's what it's <laughs> saying and it's basically the Jamaican version of go fu- uh fuck off or fuck you. Uh, that's good. I like yeah. that. I like so a little a, knowledge. Yeah, it's a very common phrase too. Apparently, your worst role. My worst role was. I mean, it's hard. Like, cause you want to say Seagal, but at the same rate, it's like Seagal gives you the action, but it's Seagal. He's a terrible actor. He's a horrific actor. Horrific. (laughs) So he's my worst role too. But like you're watching a Seagal movie. So what are you going to like? What are you really here for? Yeah, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. I'm not there to see him act. I'm there to see him break some arms. Yeah. Well, Keith David, actually, I feel like shit on him. So as far as (laughs) as far as acting chops go. Because you have a real actor and a not real actor. I guess so. All right. Most quotable line. All right. So I had a few. I got one. Uh, Seagal and Keith David having a back and forth. And he goes, Seagal goes, one thought he was invincible. The other thought he could fly. And Keith David goes, so? And he goes, they were both wrong. I like the one where at the beginning of the movie, when he's like, we're going to the meeting anyway. And the guy's like, what are you insane? And he just goes, what did anyone ever accuse me of being sane? Oh, I almost threw up in my mouth so when bad. he said that. It was so bad. Like, oh, you're such a tough guy. You're so crazy, Seagal. Then later on, when the FBI agent's trying to get him to help them out, and he goes, come on, Hatcher, help us out on this one. If It's in the blood. If it's in the blood, then I'll get a transfusion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. He is by far the worst. Then when his... <laughs> When his niece gets shot and he's talking to the doctor and he goes, treat her like she's the president of the United States of America. <laughs> like, come on, guy. Come on. And then this, hold on. Stuff. I have I have one one more left. So that was it two fingers? What do they call Jimmy Two Fingers? I don't even know what the guy's name is. The, the, the mobster that's somehow involved in all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when Seagal finally like has him in the hotel room, he goes, "I'd sell anything to anyone except you, Hatcher. I wouldn't sell you the sweat off my balls." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounds fitting. The, they were, those are classic lines. I think those might be like quotable forever. I agree with I, that. That I agree with a thousand percent. <laughs> All right. This was definitely a Seagal movie. So at the end of it, in this month, we had one very well put together film in Memphis Bell. Yep. And then we had two other movies. (laughs) (laughs) I will not call them films. I will call them movies. And I will say, while I was entertained, they were not, not good movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mark for Death, I would definitely leave on in the background. Quickly down under, I would like point at the TV and be like, "Hey, I saw that," and then turn it <laughs> off. And in Memphis Bell, I'd sit down and watch. I gotta be honest, I had, I had a good time though, so I, I guess I really can't hate on these movies that much because what, what no. else do you expect from a Seagal movie? Really, you no. you expect the action, you expect the cheesy lines, and you Marked, expect the bad acting. Marked for Death was twice as good as Hard to Kill was. Twice as good. 
Yes, I agree. So next month, we're almost at the end of it, man. And next month, we have a really good month. So we have November 1990 coming up. And we get, now, not the top three, not in any particular order, but we have a movie I've never seen before, Jacob's Ladder, that I'm 1,000% going to watch before the podcast. Same. Child's Play 2. Which the I've res- seen 100 times. The Rescuers Down Under. This was... <sighs> That's a, a childhood great, favorite, both of ours. A childhood classic. I'm going to fanboy on this and Disney all over. Rocky Five. We get the shit on Rocky <laughs> Five. I'm excited to do that. Predator 2. Guess who's in Predator 2? Danny Glover. And yes. Bill uh, Paxton. Bill Paxton, of course. And you get Misery. Which is a fantastic movie. I can't believe Misery wasn't in the top three. Misery is a fantastic movie. Then you get Home Alone. Love and Home Dances Alone. with Wolves. Now which I haven't. Made, which made more money? Was it Home Alone or Dances? I guess we'll talk about Home that Alone, next week. Home Alone crushed everything. That's but cool. yeah, uh, so Dances with Wolves, I haven't seen in, in at least a decade. At least that's, that's my father's favorite movie. So I'm very skeptical about it because my father has terrible taste in movies. But I do like Kevin Costner. So I haven't seen this since I'm like 12 years old. It'll be a fun watch. Yeah, I'm not a Kevin Costner fan. <laughs> I, my favorite Kevin Costner movie might arguably be the worst Kevin Costner movie, and it's Waterworld. Waterworld's an amazing movie. Anyone that doesn't like that movie, I don't like them. I love Waterworld. I love apocalyptic films. Same. All right, so this was a good one. Listen, also, anybody who's been listening to the podcast, please do us a favor. Like, comment, subscribe, because we're doing our best to garner followers, and uh, we just want to know that other people are entertaining. Or, excuse me, uh, we want to know that other people are entertained by this as much as we're entertained doing it. And if you have any feedback, we love feedback too. You can email us at be kind, please rewind 90 at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter, and we're on the gram, and we don't have a website. <laughs> we're working on it. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we look forward definitely to having a stellar month next month. See you next time. See you next time.